Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Bill is away today and back next week. I'm Sudeep Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico, filling in for Bill. It's kind of a shock, but it's still infrastructure week in Washington. And unlike in prior years, the infrastructure talks haven't fallen apart yet. President Biden says he's willing to compromise on some of the taxes and spending in his plan, but he insists the nation must pass an infrastructure plan to stay competitive with the likes of China. GOP voters tell pollsters they like it. GOP senators do not. At least on this, Republican officials are making a policy argument, arguing over just what infrastructure is. But otherwise, the GOP messaging is focused lately on cultural issues, like the Major League Baseball boycott of Georgia over its new voting laws, and attacks on companies that have taken positions against that law. Will this help the GOP in the midterms? Meanwhile, Democrats want to move big legislation on voting rights, gun safety, and immigration reform. But it's now a Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is standing in their way. And the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd featured an unusually large number of police officers testifying against their fellow officer. To discuss all of that and more, joining me virtually this Friday morning around 8.30 a.m. are two of Washington's top political journalists, Leah Askarnam, editor of the National Journal Hotline. Welcome, Leah. Hi, Sudeep. Amazing pronunciation of my last name. All Just right. very impressed by that. And Maya King, politics reporter at my home base, Politico. Hi, Maya. Hi, Sudeep. Nice to uh, virtually be reunited here. Great to have you here. Okay, let's get started. Biden this week is focused on infrastructure still, a week after launching his plan. And his main primary focus on this is American competitiveness. Here he is on Wednesday of this week. You're all going to be reporting over the next six to eight months how China and the rest of the world is racing ahead of us in the investments they have in the future. Attempting to own the future, the technology, quantum computing, investing significant amounts of money in dealing with cancer and Alzheimer's. That's infrastructure of a nation. There's a new book out about how we've fallen behind. America is no longer the leader of the world because we're not investing. Leah, this is playing differently in the polls, where it's quite positive, than it is in the Senate Republican caucus, where it seems to be quite negative. What are GOP voters seeing that senators are not? So I feel like we are now trying to grapple with the actual definition of bipartisanship. It's something that I don't think we were expecting to have to discuss in 2021, but hey, new administration, new discussion. Um, so the question is, does bipartisan support mean that it has support from Republicans and Democrats in Congress? I would say yes. And I think that's the traditional definition. Um, but Democrats like Joe Biden are trying to basically form their message around the idea that uh, basically appealing to Republican voters or independent voters who lean Republican uh, merits the word bipartisan. Um, in the end, I mean, Republicans, they have you know, real concerns about the, the, the cost of uh, taking on a 
such a major package. They've called it a, a democratic wish list. Um, but in the end, I mean, from my cynical political point of view, uh, they are going into the 2022 midterms with a really tough uh, path back to the Senate majority uh, favored probably to win the House majority. And um, they're they're developing a, a message now that is that they're the, the party that's more responsible and that Democrats are um, being wasteful. Uh, whether or not that works, I, I think is uh, a whole other question. And I, we, we can get into that later, I guess. Maya, there's a, uh, a fight over uh, over what is bipartisanship. There's also a fight over what is infrastructure. Uh, a lot of de- definitional games here on what falls under the infrastructure bucket. Uh, have we come to a conclusion on that? What is infrastructure? I think we're right now in a place where it's sort of this battle of messaging. Um, to Leah's point, the GOP has sort of described this infrastructure plan as a Trojan horse of sorts, saying that it would open the door to even more expensive um, plans from the Biden administration and the, the radical far left that would sort of bankrupt the U.S. government, um, to put that in more, I guess, apocalyptic terms. But I think that what Democrats are leaning into is really what um, the what this past 16 months, what the past year has been and the different um, inequalities that it's exposed that have sort of made it, in their eyes, extremely important that infrastructure really be prioritized at this point. Um, You heard Housing Secretary Marsha Fudge talk about how housing is infrastructure, broadband access is infrastructure. I'm not sure if these were things we would be thinking about or calling infrastructure even 20 years ago. Um, And so for that reason, I, I doubt that we've really come to a consensus yet on exactly what infrastructure means. And given um, the legacy of the previous, the Trump administration um, and the ongoing sort of months, if not years long, expanding definition and sort of tease of infrastructure, we're sort of still in this place of trying to figure out what that is. And I think it'll be really incumbent upon Democrats to figure that out rather quickly, especially as they determine exactly what price tag um, they're going to put on this infrastructure package. Yeah, it hasn't been settled by infrastructure weeks uh, of the past years uh, at all. Uh, among the the cabinet officials uh, for Biden who have been outselling this version, Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, here he was uh, over the weekend on this week with George Stephanopoulos. Well, let's be clear. There's a lot more than uh, roads and bridges uh, that are part of infrastructure. Uh, I, you know, I heard the, the governor of South Dakota recently saying this is an infrastructure. It's got money for pipes. Well, we believe that pipes are infrastructure because you need water to live. We talk about roads and bridges, but also airports and ports. We need to make sure that we have broadband. I know that traditionally the Internet uh, wasn't considered infrastructure because in the Eisenhower years, of course, it didn't exist. But infrastructure investment has to include looking to the future. Yeah, and and clearly here the people of Flint, Michigan think uh, pipes are infrastructure. Maya, where do we where are we going to end up on some of the other things that are in here? There are, are provisions in the infrastructure plan that are are less traditional. That might be home care. That might be supportive of of families. Will will those make it in the infrastructure discussion? Well, knowing what we know about about this Congress, um, particularly about this Senate, I doubt that some of these uh, these other sort of more loose definitions of infrastructure might make it in this last uh, or the final package. But it's interesting to hear Secretary Buttigieg talk about this um, because it mirrors a lot of the messaging that's just been coming out of the White House um, since Biden really took office in January. There's this large, heavy lean into equity and this approach to all uh, matters of policy with that 
that word in mind, um, and especially as it relates to racial equity. I think, in addition to um, you know the the battle that we'll see over whether or not these these more loose definitions of infrastructure might make it into the final package, we'll start to see more people coming out of the woodwork who will be advocating for these kinds of things, not just on the um, the cabinet level, but even on the advocate. Um, and even community level. I mean, you mentioned Flint. There's also um, the heightened attention being paid to communities of color, especially um, schools that have been neglected in the past that had a really hard time and are still struggling uh, to open to reopen, given the fact that, you know, COVID restrictions require a lot more insulation and just more public health measures um, being taken. And so uh, it's, it's made it more difficult uh, for these schools to reopen, but it's also bolstered Democrats' argument, uh, again, for different types of infrastructure to be able to help folks. And of course, looking towards 2022, as I think you know we all are at this point, giving them a lot more talking points to say, look, this is what we're thinking about. This is what um, we're trying to make happen. And we hope that you'll reelect us um, in the next year to, to actually continue this work. Now, among those Democrats, uh, President Biden is facing some roadblocks from one of them. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia uh, came out this week firmly against the filibuster yet again, uh, against uh, repealing the filibuster. And he even aired some of his misgivings about uh, about reconciliation. Uh, Leah, when when you you saw this this op ed from Joe Manchin, uh, what was he trying to do here with this this double blow first on 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 filibuster reform and then on reconciliation. I think Joe Manchin is being very Joe Manchin. He's he knows and he actually admitted on the record recently that he knows that uh, the Democratic agenda will not get through without his support. Now, that's true of just about any Democratic senator at this point uh, because of their uh, slim majority. Uh, but he understands that, you know, he, the attention is on him. And he's also in a state that's obviously a, a Trump state, a very Republican leaning state and trying to, you know, make the case that he's trying to get the Senate work. He's not trying to be a Democrat or Republican. He's trying to facilitate compromise and negotiation. And, you know, that's a similar conversation to you know the, what we're hearing from the Biden administration. Uh, of course, the actual situation on the ground in Congress is is very different. Uh, there are a lot of high-minded ideas about how, you know, Democrats and Republicans can work together on everything from infrastructure to this week, you know, the new kind of wish is uh, Pat Toomey hoping that uh, Democrats and Republicans can work together on uh, gun control legislation. Uh, but the reality is that just getting the Democrats all to agree on one thing is a huge challenge, let alone getting any Republican support, uh, just either because of the you know era we're in, just completely politically polarized, or uh, because of each party's individual political motiva- motivations heading into 2022 and 2024. So Leah, what, what does the, the next uh, maybe few months look like here if, if Joe Manchin is insisting that that we have a bipartisan effort. Uh, does that mean uh, breaking up the, the infrastructure package, trying to come up with a, a deal among Republicans and then just plowing ahead if they don't come together with, with the Democrats? I mean, that's kind of what happened with the COVID relief bill, right? Or the COVID relief 
law now um, that there was a lot of hand wringing, a lot of trying to reach out to Republicans and conversations with Republicans and invitations to speak with Republicans. And in the end, it passed on a party line. Uh, the question is, how far will Joe Manchin go in trying to reach out? Uh, will he has indicated that he, he'll, he'll hit a, a stopping point at some point um, where he might not be up for, you know, completely changing the way the Senate runs, but he would be open to, you know, talk about some sort of reform. Um, in the end, I think it's, go I would keep an eye on uh, the outgoing Republican senators, um, especially Pat Toomey. Um, if Democrats are able to bring those outgoing Republican senators who have very little to lose politically because they're not running for re-election, um, there are five of them, if they're able to bring them into the fold, then I, I think that that's something we could potentially see. But if we're reading history and kind of reading the tea leaves and looking at what the individual statements from uh, members of Congress actually look like, it just feels very unlikely that Democrats are going to get anything through without the reconciliation process. Am I this this week seemed like yet another uh, bursting of, of the, the bubble among uh, progressive dreams on some of the big bills on on voting rights, on gun safety, on immigration. Uh, the, these are in, in some ways the, the ticket to the midterms for a lot of Democrats. Where do they go if they if they can't push some of these efforts through Congress? Well, I think they probably would take this back to the base um, and start to talk more about looking towards 2022 to elect folks to push this through. Um, I'm thinking about particularly Raphael Warnock, who's up for re-election next year, who has been really outspoken on a number of these topics, especially voting rights um, in his home state of Georgia. He, of course, is 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 running next year um, and has a lot on his plate in not only trying to advocate for for these changes, but also in thinking about looking forward um, what his his re-election campaign message is going to look like. Um, and, you know, there's, I, it's almost been a bit hyperbolic the way that Democrats have kind of been talking about these issues and saying that this is also just a matter of how democracy works, especially in tying it to the filibuster. Um, the argument that I've seen, especially from a number of civil rights advocates, has been that really eliminating the filibuster at this stage, especially as it relates to voting rights, is one means of sort of protecting democracy because of um, the, the time that it would have to uh, allowing more access to the ballot for more people, especially um, black voters who are the base of the Democratic Party. And so I think this is going to be a months long conversation. A number of Democrats and progressives in particular are going to have to go back to the drawing board to figure out exactly not only what their message about this will be, but how they really plan to to apply pressure and, and make changes or or at least try to move the ball forward a bit if they can't actually see this legislation passed um, during this Congress. Now, speaking of going back to the base, uh, the GOP is also trying to do that, pulling out an old playbook, looking for a revival of, of the culture wars to grab attention. Uh, and, and in this case, they're they're focusing on uh, on that voting rights issue, um, which which of course goes well beyond culture wars to a fundamental uh, fundamental question. But this this last week, the Major League uh, Baseball was attacked for moving the All Star Game to Colorado, even after some prominent Georgians like uh, Stacey Abrams worked to prevent it. This week, we've seen attacks on corporations and CEOs who criticize the Georgia voting legislation, boycotts called for against Coke, Delta, and others, and some advice from Senate Minority Leader and a great fan of corporations and their money, Mitch McConnell. Here he is earlier this week. It's my advice to the corporate CEOs of America is to stay out of politics. 
don't pick sides in these big fights. Well, how'd that go over? Uh, we, we heard a, a day or two later uh, the, the, the sound of Mitch McConnell walking it back. I'm not talking about political contributions. Most of them contribute to both sides. They have political action committees. That's fine. It's legal. It's appropriate. I support that. Now, now Leah, th- this is clearly the uh, re- Republicans trying to take the voting rights issue, turn it into a, a, a cultural grievance. Uh, will that work in 2022? Does that work for the base? I mean, it's I, there are just so many layers to what Mitch McConnell has been saying the last week. So part of it is, you know, it, it's the the issue that is bringing this all to the forefront is voting rights. Um, of course, it's uh, focused on in the federal government on HR one, uh, but in states uh, they are passing their Republicans in state legislatures are passing their own laws that um, limit or roll back uh, access to uh, voting, either ones that had been added during the pandemic and sometimes going a little bit further, um, and so it's become a really hot button issue. Uh, The thing with Republicans right now is they have historically had a pretty, you know, they've been the the kind of party that gets along with big business. You know, they passed the GOP tax bill in 2017, which was a hit um, with big business. Uh, Now, after that 2017 tax bill has gone through, it seems like big business kind of got what they want. um, And now they're thinking about their customers, their voters. um, And their customers who are voters, um, and they tend to be Democratic voters. Um, Democrats make up a vast majority of the GDP, and it's only growing. Uh, So these big companies have been grappling with this since really before the 2020 election when we saw the Chamber of Commerce um, express frustration that, uh, or sorry, we saw Republicans express frustration with the Chamber of Commerce for endorsing Democrats. Um, So you're seeing Republicans in this post-Trump identity crisis trying to decide if they are the party of big business, um, cutting regulations, or if they are, uh, or if it's more important to advocate for uh, social and cultural issues, which I, I mean, to be clear, this social and cultural issues that are incredibly important, putting it in the cultural issue category does not diminish its importance here. Um, this is a, an issue that's, you know, defines the American story. But um, in general, they have to figure out how, what the post-Trump era looks like. And that's that's what we're seeing here. It seemed a little dizzying some days with this week. You had uh, Republicans one hour uh, arguing against uh, repealing the, the Trump tax cuts, which obviously were, were geared toward helping corporations and reducing their uh, corporate tax rate. And then the next hour, you hear another Republican talking about uh, penalizing corporations for being too woke uh, and for engaging on on the voting rights uh, issue and on, on Georgia. Is it going to be possible for them to, to play both of those those lines uh, in the corporate world um, as they're trying to sell this message to voters? It seems like a really tough one. Uh, it seems like it's going to be tough for, first off, for Republicans to, you know, say that they're the party of fiscal responsibility after Trump, you know, who his main fiscal concern, fiscal concern was getting a good deal. You know, it wasn't the, the deficit, debt, etc. Um, now Republicans have to kind of redefine what fiscal responsibility looks like, but they're also um, trying to, you know, we saw in a Gallup poll this week that there's a nine percentage point 
advantage for Democrats um, in the national Democratic, you know, whether you lean Democrat or lean Republican. Um, right now, there's 49 percent of Democrat, 49 percent of Americans lean toward Democrats, 40 percent toward Republicans, which is the highest uh, gap we've seen since late 2012. Um, so it's just there. The Republicans are in between a rock and a hard place. Businesses are also between a rock and a hard place. And it, it seems to me that businesses are trying to get on Democrats good side and Republicans are just just don't don't know what to do. Maya, it seems like Republicans have fought fought uh, some of these battles before, right? Over, uh, I think we spent a year or two ta- talking about kneeling for the national anthem and other issues like that, and uh, they they seem to have have lost a lot of that, or did they lose that battle? Or is that still an ongoing battle that Republicans could win? Well, I think um, when we're thinking about like specific issues, probably not. But overall, I think the strategy here is is probably one that, that Republicans are betting is going to be successful in the main goal um, of, an, of engaging the base and also maintaining really um, excitement for the party without their without Trump, um, you know, doing uh, rallies and actually being the face of the party. Now, I think they have to sort of cling to different issues that they know are going to play well, and especially in this time, um, and I mean, I think over the last few years, as you as you've alluded to, uh, cultural issues have really been the thing that does that. And I think it also, um, you know, kind of speaks to another issue, which is this sort of internal discord that we're seeing within the Republican Party, and how talking about these cultural issues really tends to distract from that. I mean, in the last, let's say, six weeks, um, we've just seen a ton of drama uh, from prominent Republicans. Um, Matt Gates, of course, is, is, is the latest flashpoint in that. We saw Ted Cruz a few weeks ago. Marjorie Taylor Greene is, uh, you know, she doesn't have any committee assignments and she was an entire uh, news cycle at the beginning of this Congress. And so it was uh, this idea, I think, uh, for those of us in the media trying to figure out, you know, what the, the term is uh, or the Republican form of uh, Dems in disarray might be, I think we're also seeing a little bit of that and perhaps a side effect of that, which is just this heavy lean into the issues they know they can talk about, they know will play well with the base, and they know will gin up votes right now. And my, this seems like a, a, a vindication of a long democratic strategy, at least among uh, the progressive base to, to uh, win over the corporations, which is an unusual uh, thing to even hear that, that Democrats are trying to win over the corporations, but they're trying to win over the places where uh, we all work and buy products, uh, trying to get, get change that way. Um, is, this, is this part of the sea change in corporate America? Is this going to actually tilt the scales in, in one direction now? Well, I think it's tilted certainly in Democrats' direction in this moment, largely as a response to just the moment that we've seen in this country over the last year. It was certainly advantageous for a number of corporations to sort of get on the side of voting rights and social justice and um, and social equity, really, especially after last summer's protest. I mean, all eyes were on, and it was almost a, a smart money move, not to sound too cynical or to reduce these issues. Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's certainly not something that we might see last a long time. Um, a number of progressives and activists, particularly in Georgia, were extremely frustrated with corporations ahead of, um, the passage of, of the voting rights bill in Georgia that limited voting rights. They were calling on the same corporations like Coca-Cola and Delta, um, and Home Depot and FedEx, a number of these that have, 
uh, their main hubs in Atlanta to actually come forth before uh, that bill was signed and actually come out against it because they seem to be in they or at least I think in the minds of of some activists, um, you know, at least in favor of this cause against uh, curbing voting rights um, and especially given the support that they showed during last summer's protests, you know, they were expecting, I think, a lot of that same energy uh, going towards these these voting rights bills to come out against them. And that just wasn't the case because corporations at that time, at least, were a bit uh, reticent to really weigh in and, and use their voices. And of course, now we've seen that some have come forward and actually said, you know, that they are against it and that they you know, we'll try to use um, whatever power they have to to try to curb the the side effects of this. But it might be too little too late um, in the minds of progressives. And, you know, it might be time for them to also think about different avenues by which they can try uh, to affect this same change. But that, of course, will be extremely difficult because corporations, as we know, are just very powerful and their impact on politics um, is not going anywhere anytime soon. Okay, this is the Bill Press Pod. We're here with Leah Skarnam and Maya King. Let's take a quick break. And during the break here, we want to remind you about the important battle nationwide against these voter suppression efforts in so many states by so many Republican legislatures. The worst, of course, we saw in Georgia, where it's now a crime uh, to offer somebody a drink of water, somebody standing in line to vote to offer them a drink of water, a bill that's been denounced by President Biden, by the head of Delta Airlines, by the head of Coca-Cola, and by many, many others. But this battle is taking place, as I say, in many states, not just in Georgia. It's something we've all got to be uh, not just aware of, but involved in to stop these voter suppression efforts. Best way to do so Sign up with Fair Fight. That's a great organization started in Georgia by Stacey Abrams. Their website, fairfight.com. Check it out. Sign up. Join the fight to save democracy and save the right to vote for every American. Fairfight.com. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. I'm Sudeep Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico, sitting in for Bill this week with Maya King, also of Politico, and Leah Eskaranam of National Journal. This week, we're hearing a lot more from the former president. It's not even a uh, 100 days since he's left office. He's now uh, becoming a big factor in, uh, in Republican politics yet again after his quiet period. He's endorsing in primaries. He's restarted his fundraising. Is this all good for Republicans, Leah? Is it good for Democrats? Who's going who's gonna to benefit from the Trump factor here? I think everyone. Um, I, this morning we saw uh, Trump endorse Marco Rubio's re-election, which is striking, not because it's surprising, um, but because just having flashbacks to just over four years ago, Trump calling Marco Rubio little Marco on a debate stage. And, uh, you know, now here we are and 
Marco Rubio is it needs Trump's endorsement in order to win re-election, um, in order to win win a primary. Uh, so on one hand, Trump is the best fundraiser for Republicans and Democrats. He makes Democrats angry, they donate, uh, and he makes Republicans angry in another way, and they donate. Uh, the question is how much of the money that Trump has has made basically for Republicans um, by ginning up that enthusiasm. And now that he's not president, how much of that goes to Trump's new PAC and how much of that goes to Republicans and Republican committees? Um, Trump has already started taking positions against incumbents, um, especially those who voted to impeach him, Republican incumbents, I should say, who voted for impeachment, um, which is going to put Republican committees like the NRCC, the the House campaign arm, um, in a really tricky position. So I, I think it's it's worth keeping an eye on. You know, usually it, the kind of campaign finance world is there's just a few of us who are finding you know the FEC quarterly report super interesting. Uh, but I am very interested to see um, whether Trump's uh, the create the formation of his own PAC um, has taken money, peeled money away from the Republican committees. And, and Maya, the, the president, uh, the, the former president was obviously uh, never able to de- deliver an infrastructure bill, but he really was uh, a, 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 a focused on on these these cultural issues, on these battles that we're having now. He came out this week uh, calling for the, the, the boycott of a, a few companies, even though he was still drinking Coca-Cola in his office. Uh, that didn't seem to stop him. But is that where the, the Republicans need him outplaying out playing this this war on their behalf I think that's one of the more effective um, roles that he could assume right now uh, especially because he really defined a lot of the culture wars of this uh, political era that we're in and the ways that culture has really infiltrated politics and I don't think anyone of course is going to outright decline his help uh, especially on the Republican side in their efforts to to try to shore up support um, but my question is whether or not this really does make an, a, a difference on on the voter side and whether it really helps uh, turn out folks and actually um, you know help Republicans sort of you know take back the Senate and also hold the house or, or take back the House as well in 2022. Um, Because what it seems to me is that a lot of these arguments, especially those that Trump has started, of course, they play well with the base, but largely among those who were going to vote Republican anyway. Um, And so I'm not sure if this means that the former president will have to craft a more sophisticated message on the culture wars or whether or not it'll just be him continuing to shell out uh, these these endorsements and Many many emails from the Save America Pack that uh, have sort of given uh, the country uh, a window into what the former president is thinking, but it's also going to require a bit more effort because Democrats have talking points of their own now as well as we talked about earlier in the show. There's of course um, the infrastructure package that they hope to pass, the stimulus money that's already been you know doled out to to a number of Americans, uh, the end perhaps soon of of COVID in this country. Um, the economy uh, on the on the upswing, which was one thing that uh, you know the former president really had in his own wheelhouse before the coronavirus and the economic downturn that it created. Uh, so there's a lot of different forces at work here, and so I'm not sure. I mean, I think the cultural issues will definitely play well and and be um, a huge part of of this next election cycle that we're going to see. But whether or not Trump is going to be the one who is who is leading that in the same way, I highly doubt. In, indeed. 
So also capturing our attention throughout the week uh, against the backdrop of all of that has been the televised, televised trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer charged with murdering George Floyd. It was fellow cops going against him this week. Maya, when you, you've seen uh, this this testimony, we've all been been riveted by the by the trial. What does this tell us about what we long assumed would be police officers sticking together? Is something larger changing here? I think so. I mean, uh, we use this phrase blue wall of silence, or that's the phrase that has been uh, ascribed to this dynamic of police officers when they are called to testify in cases in which one of their colleagues has been um, uh, accused of, of murder or killing a civilian. It's, it's what we you know, used to describe the the benefit of the doubt that they're that they're really willing to to give to their fellow officers, and we're not really seeing that in the same way with the Chauvin trial. And I think the large reason, of course, is because uh, we now have the eight minutes um, forty six seconds, or now I guess the nine minutes and twenty nine seconds. That's the the updated time of this video that shows in very clear um, a very clear manner Chauvin. Uh, killing George Floyd. And and there's just no way to to argue against that. And then to take it even further, he's not using a weapon. There's no argument to be made perhaps about Chauvin feeling threatened or, um, you know, using a knee-jerk reaction as has been often the argument for a number of other police officers caught on camera killing civilians. I mean, Floyd is handcuffed. Chauvin's knee is on his neck. There's no way that Floyd would be able to move. And you hear, of course, in the back, a number of people also um, narrating exactly what's happening. And so, and, you know, uh, and that's to say nothing of, of just how graphic the video is, or even what the last 12 months have been with the protests against that very thing. So it seems like there's just a lot less incentive um, for, for police officers in this situation in particular, to really come forward and try to um, make this look like anything other than what it is, which is a very clear-eyed um, video footage just captured like, raw on tape um, of, of, Chauvin, of Chauvin killing Floyd. And so it's, it's not just um, here where we're seeing, I think, this change in, in conversation, but it's also started this change in, in police and use of force. And so I think that's also why we're seeing a number of officers come forth and say that that's you know, not at all what they would what they would try to do to uh, try to uh, sort of alleviate the situation in, in other contexts. Leah, we've all, all seen that video, 9 minutes, 29 seconds. A lot of police have seen that video, of course. Uh, I can't imagine an officer has not seen that video and watched it and wondered what they would do in that situation. Are these just the, the circumstances of, of this case, or do you, do you think views of police from police and of police might be changing with all of this? That's a really good question and something that I've definitely been thinking about, especially this week and trying to, you know, we'll know when the verdict comes in, but um, trying to get a sense from this, you know, very small sample, this trial of what this means for larger um, kind of changes in in Americans' perceptions. I I think that the the first kind of place my brain goes is that uh, immediately following um, the death of George Floyd, there was a massive, you know, kind of show of support for, um, Black Lives Matter and, um, different, uh, civil rights and racial justice groups. Um, we saw in the months following, um, Republicans kind of use that 
uh, groundswell um, to paint these groups as, you know, radical. Um, and that did resonate with some people in the polling. I mean, it, it, there was a, a drop in that sort of um, that sort of support. Um, and now we're consistently seeing it in Republican messaging, you know, saying that to come in totally baselessly that, uh, you know, if the Capitol riot, you know, Ron Johnson saying if the, the Capitol riot had been um, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, he would have been afraid, but he wasn't because, you know, they were they were Trump supporters. I mean, it's just it's all it's it's ridiculous. And it's also probably showing um, some of the places where this movement could um kind of backtrack in terms of American sentiment. So I guess I'm trying not to be too optimistic um, just because we've, we've seen similar kind of stories happen before. Um, But I would say that just looking at the overall polling and overall where Americans stand, it does seem like the kind of, you know, cultural um, backlash to uh, Black Lives Matter is, is with a, a narrower group of people. Um, and that is going to be Republicans major issue in 2022 is, you know, you need that narrow group of people to get through a primary, but what happens in a general election when American sentiment is quickly theoretically, um, turning to become, you know, more, more socially liberal. Yeah. Well, and- well yeah, well, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say very quickly to Leah's point, um, we've already started to see some public opinion towards Black Lives Matter and, and the social justice movements of this last, of 2020 in particular, uh, start to wane, even though it was it was at its height uh, last summer. But at the same time, um, when we're thinking about police reform, particularly as it relates to chokeholds, public opinion has started to, to wane towards that too and say that there actually does need to be reform um, and that a number of people are absolutely against that. And that's one of the core provisions um, of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would effectively ban chokeholds. And that's something that I think Democrats will be needing to lean into a bit more as it relates to actual um, at policing and the ways that police do use uh, use of force. And of course, it's something that's been discussed rather widely. But now that this case is back on uh, front of mind for a number of people, and this video, of course, is being shown uh, more widely of Chauvin and Floyd, it's just something I think uh, that that will that will be just worth keeping in mind um, over these next few weeks. Indeed, some far-reaching implications almost a, a, a year after uh, the the killing of George Floyd. So, uh, okay, thank you, uh, uh, Maya, and thank you, Leah. Before we let you go, there must have been a story this week that caught your attention, funny, serious, provocative, or thought-provoking. We want to hear your favorite story of the week. So, Maya, why don't you start us off? Sure. So the story that um, that I've chosen this week is from The Guardian, and it came out uh, and it was talking about Georgia's Black faith leaders um, and how they've really assumed a number of large amount of political power over the last few months. We know that the Black church has largely been a community staple and has long had a lot of political power, um, you know, really since like the King era and even before then. But it's really interesting. Um, and the story really gets at just how mu- how different um, that face of power has looked in 2020 and 2021, especially in the wake of uh, the the voting rights bill in Georgia that has curbed a lot of um, provisions that 
directly relate to uh, the way that the Black church organizes around elections, especially the souls to the polls provision on Sundays um, and the limits on Sunday voting now that exist in Georgia. And so this is just a really good look um, at the ways that different Black faith leaders are trying to fight this and uh, just how they plan to uh, continue to stay in people's minds. They don't you know, plan to go anywhere and are going to be working with a number of uh, activist groups um, and and younger activists too, which is something new that we haven't really seen in many years. Um, and it's a storyline that I've been following quite a bit in my own reporting. So a story that I really enjoyed. An important one to watch. Leah, what caught your attention? So I'm going to cheat a little bit because I read this story finally this week, but it's actually, I believe, from January. Um, but I, I can't be the only person who was uh, inundated with other forms of media in January of 2021. So for people who now have a second for some more leisurely reading, um, I I just very much recommend. It's a Harper's Magazine uh, essay by Anne Patchett, starting out uh, explaining how she got Tom Hanks to narrate one of her books on on Audible uh, or audiobook, and it turns into this really kind of heartbreaking story about her experience. during the pandemic and in quarantine. Um, so it's, it's a little older, but I, I recommend it as a, as a this week read if you haven't done it yet. All right. My, my favorite story this week, uh, just in the last couple of days, we all know it's, uh, it's college acceptance week decisions coming down from colleges. Uh, and, and this was, uh, the headline, the university of Kentucky mistakenly sends 500,000 acceptances. Uh, due to a technical issue, half a million high school seniors got into a program that usually accepts about three dozen students a year. So uh, that is not a pretty week uh, in in the University of Kentucky admission office, a heart stopper for a lot of students after a very confusing and disruptive pandemic year. Uh, but certainly one that caught my attention. So, uh, well, it's a, it's been a great panel. Uh, thank you to uh, Maya King of uh, Politico and Leah Escarnam of National Journal. And a special thanks to our producer, Jay Feldman, for all his help this week. And thank you all for listening. Bill will be back next week. I'm Sudeep Reddy.